episode of the Degenerate Business School is brought to you by Industrial Mining, ruining the quality of human life since the 19th century, and horse-drawn carriages coming back to a house near you in a hundred years. But, ah! Gregor? Uh, Saturday afternoon. Drinking coffee. coffee. We were, uh, we were actually just talking about, um, quantitative easing. And... Scintillating conversation. Fiscal policy. And you were talking a lot of, a lot of trash on James. I was asking questions. (laughs) Just asking... Just asking questions. The tough questions. Uh, but he's not here to defend himself, and we're not going to talk about that today. But but the gauntlet has been laid, maybe, maybe, possibly, for a future episode. Uh, today we're going to talk about our failures as investors in Valero, but we're going to zoom out on it, you know, because it's not our fault, right? Ultimately, it's the world's fault. Uh, May is the first negative growth month in the S&P this year, which, I don't know, would you, would you call it, it, that by itself is kind of an anomaly, right? Yeah, I mean, this, this whole year has been, has been strange, from the early run-up simply being uh, an offset of the end of the year's massive collapse. So, I don't know that there's been a lot of normalcy to this year so far. But, uh, but we can, so obviously our decision to buy Valero when we did suboptimal, but in the recent context of the great trade war, which we inaugurated last week, um, it all makes sense, right? Because we're now on a crescendo of saber rattling, as they like to say in all the articles that are written about China and U.S. trade tensions. The latest foray, though, is quite interesting. Uh, We talked a lot about last week how tariffs are, and, and the tariff rhetoric, or the implementation of tariffs with China, are essentially symbolic proxy conflicts around the things that really matter, which are intellectual property, cyber warfare considerations. But now, the new wrinkle is China is really levering up on its position uh, relative to rare earth metals uh, and is threatening to cut production. Now, prior to this week, we never paid attention to what the fuck a rare earth metal was. Yeah, so so that's it's rather troubling, not just for the world and for the United States, but... For the very existence of this podcast. Yeah, uh, it turns out these little fuckers in the ground (laughs) called rare earth metals are actually crucially important to a variety of industries, uh, commercial applications. We'll get to the one that's really going to screw us over soon. But, you know, I think for everyone's benefit, we could actually probably start by explaining what rare earth metals are. 
interestingly, dug into this a little bit, uh, rare earth metals are not, in fact, rare at all. They are called this. They are a group of 17 elements. So let's be clear, we're talking about elements on the periodic table. Uh, that were anachronistically named rare earth metals by some Swedish guy back in the 18th century. They're actually quite common. Uh, several of them are more common in the earth's crust than, for instance, copper uh, or nitrogen, I think. I read that in a, in a article on the internet. I'm not going to question <laughs> it. Sure. But uh, let's just say they're relatively common. The interesting wrinkle about rare earth metals is uh, they're often not found in concentrated mineral deposits the way a copper or a gold would be, which means that actually extracting them and processing them requires a little more infrastructure investment than you'd ideally like to put into mining. Ipso facto, China. China actually only sits on roughly... 30-35% of the rare earth deposits, but controls 70% of rare earth metal production in the world. And a second context point, there is only uh, one rare earth metal mine in the United States, it's in California, uh, but they don't actually have the ability to refine, refine and process what they extract, and they export it to China for refinement purposes. So, this is why China has a chokehold on rare earth metals. You might be asking yourself, Greg, Robert, why should I care about rare earth metals or elements or whatever the hell these Swedish things are? Tell us, Robert, why should we be so concerned? Let's just start at a high level with high, iPhones and high such. High level. Mm -hmm. Okay, so from a very high level... Um, these rare earth metals are imperative in most electronics, be it batteries, I don't know, like plastics, you name it. They're everywhere. Mm -hmm. Magnets. Uh, magnets. Special glasses, I yeah. read. Yeah, sure. So they're, they're in batteries, meaning anything that has a power source relies on these things. <laughs> um, now, if we zoom in a little bit more... I'm double-clicking with you. We get to why it matters for this podcast, which is <laughs> two of these little... Uh, fuckers. Fuckers. <laughs> are also very important when it comes to oil refining. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, a tough it's one. It's a tough one. <laughs> so, if you're wondering why our positions in Valero are down 15% in a week, <laughs> that's why. That's, so, yeah. now, let's... Can we split some hairs here for a second? Let's do it. There will... Okay. There will be... I still think, I still believe, uh -huh. empirically, uh, on January 1st, 2020, when the international maritime regulations go in, and those cargo ships that trundle back and forth between the port of Long Beach and China have to use middle barrel... There will be a squeeze on the global oil supply. So, let's just be clear. The great oil crisis is not in jeopardy, necessarily. What we decided to do to make money on the great oil crisis... Very much Because <laughs> our friends at Valero 
they really need this rare earth mumbo jumbo to actually refine crude oil. Yeah, but but we're not that selfish as to simply focus on this podcast. Um, the entire market, the entire month of May has been in the shitter, and it's because this literally affects everything. Mm-hmm. So car manufacturers uh, need these for batteries and whatnot, uh, electric vehicles, yada, yada, yada. Literally everything needs these. So the fact that we are so very heavily dependent on China for them means there's very little leverage that the U.S. has in in winning this so, trade war. does this mean... Is this actually... It feels like it because you brought this up. Yeah. What does King Donald care about, ultimately, more than anything? Um, the stock market. Well... Sort of. Sort of. The stock market as a bellwether of how great he is at right. promoting the economy. Yeah, so in in defining his own success, he, he's tied to the value of the stock market, yes. Correct. So, China, have they really finally pulled the string that matters that ultimately gives them victory in this judo match around tariffs? Um, I think the last, the last thing that could save the Donald would be would be Jerry. There's been an understanding of the Fed put going on for decades that when the market collapses, um, the Fed steps in to to stop further carnage. And uh, if this continues, and Jerome finally decides to lower interest rates, it could buy him some time. But at the end of the day, I do believe that uh, this rare earth thing kind of has everybody in a vice grip. Yeah. Plus, I mean, interest rates, they matter greatly. Oscillating interest rates, is it actually enough to overcome a squeeze, essentially an embargo on rare earth exports? I don't know. Well, ultimately, so we've seen something like this before. Um, And ultimately, if China were to cut off supply it would drive up the value of these things enough that it would it would prompt other countries to start mining and and uh, processing, processing. yeah so well, uh, yeah th- again the united states only has one operational mine but i think in terms of like geological deposits it's like the third i mean yeah. we're a big country yeah uh, we could probably create that infrastructure if we had to. Right, but in order to... It would be costly. In order to drive people to to make that investment, the the price of rare earth metals has to spike substantially. So in the last, in the last couple of weeks, they've appreciated by about 10%, which is not nearly enough. Can I, can I really simplify this? Sure. Is this China's way of saying... Okay, you want a trade war? We're gonna take away your iPhones. Which, <laughs> as we all know, that's that is essentially declaring nuclear warfare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, on a related note, the Donald not having—I mean, he obviously, I'm sure, thinks he's winning the trade war with China, but right now he's losing. He decides this week to lash out at Mexico. After apparently months previous, 
uh, reaching an accord with Canada and Mexico about, you know, an import-export framework. Now he's saying, I hope you liked your Corona and your avocado because it's going to be pricier than it was before. Is this just his way of uh, redirecting his anger at a weaker, proximate country that he can uh, saber-rattle against because China's pushing him around? I mean, it might make him feel better, but I don't think he's getting anything out of it. Mm -hmm. Because, to your point, it's it's Coronas and Avocados, which... (laughs) I mean, if you have to pay an extra 10% for your guac, it's well worth it. Well, first of all, Coronas are garbage. And there's that little detail there as well. But avocados are essential (laughs) to to a productive life. And they're already expensive as fuck. Yeah, yeah, it's it's agreed. In any case, yeah, this this gets him nowhere, unfortunately. Uh, Now, the people getting screwed in this whole thing is car manufacturers. Right. A lot of our cars are manufactured down in Mexico and are dependent on... uh, Rare earth metals, metals for the uh, batteries. hybrid batteries in yeah. particular. Um, which brings us to our next topic. And it's a new theme. It's not a new thing. We've talked about it before. For anyone that listened to the uh, Heinz Ketchup Massacre podcast, we introduced this as a theme, but now we're going to hit the hell out of it. Similar to Everything is in the Cloud and the Great Oil Crisis, which we're... Listen, it's going to happen. We're just not executing on it from a money-making strategy perspective. <laughs> so, whatever. Fuck you, if you tell us. <laughs> Another one is mega-mergers. They never work. They don't. Uh, uh, Kraft Heinz being the prime example we brought up. Here's another one we could add to the suite of failed mega-mergers that we talked about in our CEO wins above replacement, which is Bayer and Monsanto. Oof. Tough one. Tough one. The latest mega merger in the automotive sector is Fiat Chrysler and Renault. Uh, So we have an Italian-American-French supercar company, which that already sounds like a problem. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, so a few things. The fact that mega mergers themselves don't work. Um, The fact that these are companies run out of different countries unfortunately it sounds rather simplistic but it leads to egos and whatnot cultural differences yeah i mean italians don't work a lot from what i can tell french people maybe a little bit more i don't know people in detroit are demoralized very sad (laughs) anyway Uh, but but to, to tie this back to what we were talking about the last couple of weeks they couldn't have picked the worst time in the yeah. global supply chain to make this happen. Yeah. And uh, forgive me if I have little faith in uh, the CEO of Fiat Chrysler, um, whom, as we've established, has a very, very <laughs> negative uh, Wins CEO. Wins replacement. Wins above replacement. So. And uh, again, gives us an opportunity to celebrate the life and legacy of Sergio Mattione, who sadly did pass away last year. Last year? Last July? Yeah. Since then... Who's the new CEO? We were just looking at this. Uh, Fiat Chrysler? Sorry. I I forget his name. But But, uh, the market cap has eroded by a third. Roughly, yeah. Michael Manley. Michael Manley. So, yeah, I mean, great name. Tough performance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's take a step back, though. So this is... 
okay, an automaker and the automotive sector is, maybe you could argue in the automotive sector, and perhaps Sergio illustrated this, is a vertical in the economy where maybe the argument in favor of mergers makes the most sense because of cost synergies, production synergies, blah, 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 blah. They couldn't have picked a worse time to get into it together because of the rare earth shortage, potentially. But why do mega mergers ultimately fail, do you think, regardless of the sector? What is the overall umbrella of failure? Well, generally, if you find yourself needing to merge, it means there's something lacking in your business. You're in secular decline. Correct. Most likely. So you're simply doubling down on another company that That has the same secular challenges. Yeah. I agree. So when you have cost synergies, sure, that'll help in the short term, but in the long term, it doesn't solve your problems. No, it doesn't. To say nothing of the fact that um, inevitably merging two cultures together, two bureaucracies, inevitably results in one winning out over the other and ultimately probably destroying the morale of the other or uh, the knife fighting that results from the politics of a merged merger of equals is destructive by its very nature. Right. Uh, so yeah, avoid mega mergers at all costs. And as I'm learning with Dow DuPont, probably avoid spinoffs too. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> Glad we got that out. Yeah, I got that out of the way. Uh, so, a couple of other things I wanted to touch on. Wouldn't say they're the main themes, but hey, we're here to talk about the news. So, why not talk about the news? Let's do it. Um, by the way, all of this just. I mean, I'm going to get into something that makes me. should make us all a little nervous, but all of what we just talked about the constraint on goods in the physical world, rare earth elements. Uh, cars, which are physical goods, uh, all of that, and China and the trade war, which right now is dwelling in the physical world, aluminum, rare earth elements, manufacturing, yada, 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 makes me feel great about the main pillar of the podcast, which is everything is in the cloud. If you're not in the cloud, what the hell are you doing? But in the cloud sector this week, An interesting article WSJ ran about Amazon and Alexa and Amazon adopting a new strategy whereby they're actually working directly with property managers to pre-wire units with Alexa instead of, you know, it being a consumer model where they buy Alexa and bring it with them. Uh, Robert sounds like a brilliant business strategy, uh, but ultimately is terrifying. So here's what I'm here to just settle once and for all. Alexa, Google Home, it's just, they're just spying devices. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and I'm sure I've said this before, but you can go ahead and ask your Google Home if it's spying on you. It's not going to say no. Um, yeah, it's going to be like, please see the terms and conditions. Which, let's face it, no one ever does. Now, full <laughs> disclosure, I have a couple of these little... Uh, Trinkets, uh-huh. and uh, my life is very, very heavily in the grasp of Google and Uber. So, 
Full disclosure, throwing that out there. <laughs> Having said that, the idea of moving into a an apartment that is pre-installed with Alexa is horrifying even to me. Oh, yeah. Um, Number one, just more speakers, I think. There's, there's <laughs> that. There's that. But also, at any given moment, I can go to the wall and unplug my Google Home. <laughs> <laughs> if Alexa is in my walls... Yeah, it's yeah, a tough one. It, it really is. Yeah, but, there's like it, it, it. Uh, the thing that is, listen. Ultimately, you know, in thirty years, we'll be old people who are just terrified of the future that we live in. I mean, we're basically there now. Yeah, I already feel like I'm sixty because I don't understand Snapface. But uh, if it makes you feel better, I asked Elena, and she doesn't either. So. What understand Snapface? Yeah, yeah. That's Actually, a Pinterest, a Pinterest. Oh, the Pinterest. Yeah, I did ask her. Um, sorry. Carry on. <laughs> By the way, no, I'm going to sidebar again. There is such a... So you're 28, right? Yeah. Uh, going on 64. Yeah. I'm 31 going on 67. Yeah. <laughs> there is such a profound difference between people who are 28 and people who are like 23. It's horrifying. Like those five, those five years basically like govern a difference between you growing up and remembering that the internet didn't exist and you growing up and thinking that the internet was something that always existed. And so someone who's 23, I think might think, Oh, pre-wiring the entire house I live in with Alexa. It could only be a good thing because it only allows me to, pay my rent over Alexa, which is apparently a feature that it creates. Uh, I can do anything, right? And I don't care anything about the consequences of the spy craft that will go with it. Whereas I think people just five years older than this fictional 23-year-old have some appreciation for the hazards that all of this creates. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, I mean, to your point, we remember a time where that wasn't a thing. Exactly. I will tell you this, nigh but two months ago, mm-hmm. I saw the Terminator for the first time. They were right. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, as an investor in Amazon, let's just get down to brass tacks here. I'm thrilled yeah. that they're doing this. Uh, yo, I'm sure these meetings at Amazon where the head of Alexa multi-dwelling unit is giving updates to Bezos or some of the works for Bezos, and there's like spectacular work. Jerome or whoever is working on it because this is a brilliant business strategy. Um, but ultimately it makes me feel like we already live in minority report. Which yeah. is also but terrifying. But one of the things you pointed out uh two weeks ago was if not for the viciousness and careless disregard for, you know, privacy and human decency and whatnot, these companies wouldn't be what they are. And so, on a final note, (laughs) the Justice Department is reopening, I don't know if it's reopening, initiating another antitrust investigation into Google. I'm going to ask a, not a terribly interesting question, but Amazon, uh, which is, obviously has a mission to invade your privacy at whatever the cost. Google, doing the same thing. Facebook, uh, these are all... Amazon, Google, Enterprise Cloud for sure. Facebook, which we've also invested in 
It's in the cloud, not a cloud services company. These are the three kind of uh, market leaders in privacy encroachment that politicians will pillory for uh, invading people's privacy, um, being monopolistic in their tendencies. And by the way, when these 23-year-olds come to power, none of this will matter to them. So all these arguments, it's all just Nancy Pelosi's 137 so it's years just old. The, it's just a matter of surviving <laughs> until the 23-year-olds come to power. But um, how, as a cloudman, how should I think about political risk when I'm investing in all of these companies? Is it remote? Possible? Likely? I have a perspective, but I want to get your take on, for instance, how likely is it that any of these companies are actually dismantled by a government intervention? No, I mean, the reality is I think uh, I think the risk is remote. I realize that whenever a political headline comes out, your position falls 5, 10, 15 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just... That's just the result of you betting on on high beta cloud companies. Oh yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, truth is, even if I invest in in physical goods, I'm just as prone to getting screwed by political headlines as you are. In fact, recent history has proven that you're actually more exposed to this recent political climate. Correct. Correct. So, I don't think you being as invested in the cloud as you are, are in any more danger than me investing in physical goods. Uh, I just think this basically makes you more susceptible to wilder swings. But, I mean, that comes with the beta, not necessarily with with the industry you're investing in. And there's also, this is not standard oil, right? It's not a self-evident... Geograph or railroads, right? Or U.S. Steel, self-evident physical monopoly in a supply chain. Where I think ultimately why it's remote is people are, and and okay, let me add another proxy. It's not like Philip Morris or the cigarette tobacco companies of old. In that, you and I would agree there is a self-evident social harm that is created by. Uh, for instance, Facebook. Probably, right? Sure. sure. Cigarette companies, there's a self-evident physical harm. Uh, Standard Oil or U.S. Steel, self-evident monopoly in a physical supply chain. Amazon, Google, Facebook, these are products that everyone, not us, but most people, well, us too, are addicted to (laughs) because they're aggregation monopolies, they have superior products, people can disdain the fact that their privacy is being invaded, but goddamn, is it easy to order toilet paper on Amazon? Yeah, and at the end of the day, you're given that option. You are given. You can elect out. No one's forcing you to use the internet. Um, so anyway, that's how I feel like the actual in a democratic system. It's very unlikely that there will be enough support to dismantle these motherfuckers. And there's also the fact that uh, at the end of the day, they have very powerful lobbyists. Very powerful. So, and whenever the subject is brought up, people are like, "Okay." I mean, Facebook's the easy one to go after, right? Sure. Like, I don't think people can actually imagine a world without Google Search or Amazon Retail, but they can. Like, well, they they forget that Facebook owns Instagram. So right. leave that aside. Yeah. <laughs> but 
I think people are happy to say, yeah, like, break up Facebook. But then when you actually think about, well, what would the successor to Facebook look like, no one actually has an idea. No, but even if you say, okay, break up Facebook, like, what does that mean? You have Facebook and you have Instagram run as separate companies? Maybe, but then you have the same, you actually are still perpetuating the same problem. Right. It doesn't actually change any structural constraint you want to put on how much they can invade your privacy. They're just set up as separate shell companies. Yeah. Now, the one thing that really does trouble me about Facebook, not that I wouldn't necessarily support its dismantling, but it's the fact that despite never having created a Facebook, they have my information as well. How, I don't know, but... I was reading something that you don't actually have to be a subscriber of Facebook for them to have information on you. Correct, because they are buying information from other developers, right? Some, I think? Yeah. yeah, it sounds about right. It's a bounty, bounty system. Yeah. So anyway, again, the thrilling business prospect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Horrifying future we're going to live in. But at least you're making money in the process. <laughs> or you will once the trade war is... Separately, I did realize... Uh, a parting, parting thought. Potential fodder for our next podcast. Because you probably have noticed that we've uh, floated away from Stock Tip Corner as Valero has fallen under the, the ocean waves. <laughs> Not your fault, again. But uh, interesting that if you look at uh, any portfolio, mine included, that at least in my you know, Roth portfolio, it's pretty much all cloud tech, etc. Um, and it outperforms the S&P handily or any like conventional index like that. But if you actually compare it to like the NASDAQ composite, because obviously it's, you know, NASDAQ just weighted by all the entire technology sector, it performs exactly the same. But an argument against like putting your whole position in like a NASDAQ ETF, for instance, is that historically the NASDAQ is way more volatile than the S&P. Yeah. Food for thought for next time. We're not going to answer it here. Is that something that will actually be true in the future? I wonder. As it seems like we're developing a cartel of market leaders like Amazon, Google, Facebook, Netflix. They're all relatively... Well, we'll see, right? Yeah. Over the next 10 years. But over the last 10 years, they've been relatively stable. Yeah. I mean, there are volatility swings, as you mentioned, but the beta's all been on the upside if you wait it out over 10 years. So right. maybe there's a paradigm shift here in value investing. Maybe. Now, full disclosure, I will get back to my <laughs> updates on Stock Tip Corner. It's just... You just need to grieve. It's been depressing. <laughs> It really has, but uh, I am still holding all the positions. I haven't sold anything and not told the listeners. So yeah, me neither. I'm still my, I'm suffering through. Yeah, my portfolio is. And as we've always said, Valero. Let's just I, my in my case, and I won't speak for you because I just bought the stock outright. I'm still gonna sit on it until at least halfway through 2020. Yeah. Well. The thing about me is, like, even if I don't intend to hold anything long-term, I will always buy long-term options as a hedge against this exact thing. Where exactly. everything is down 50%, but it still allows me plenty of time to recoup that. I believe in you. So. Even if you don't believe in yourself. <laughs> and with that, farewell, America. America.